0: I'll invite you to find Mark chapter 10 in your Bibles, or in one of the Bibles that's in the pew in front of you. Mark chapter 10. My son is almost done with the Harry Potter series of books. And these are massive books, and I can't believe the appeal of such massive books. I haven't read them yet, personally. I don't know many of you have I heard somewhere, and I confirmed it, that the whole series, I think there's seven books, is set up in a what's called a ring composition, so that books one and seven mirror and echo each other, and then books two and six mirror and echo each other, and then three and five, and then four is a central book. And that there's this concentric, concentric circle of the plot that works out, which is really quite genius. And then within each book... The chapters are set up in this ring composition so that the first and final chapters mirror each other, and the second and the second to last mirror each other, and so on. And it's pretty incredible. It's a pretty amazing achievement. Um, I was thinking about that as I was preparing for this sermon in Mark, because Mark's book has a structure as well. And as every good preacher knows, the best introduction to a sermon that really captures the attention of the audience has to do with literary structure. So I want to talk to you about the literary structure of the book of Mark real quick before we get into the text itself. So there's different ways to look at how the book is broken up. But the most common way of seeing it, and I, I think this is true, is that there's three main sections. There's three main sections, and our passage today concludes the second section. And this will be our last sermon in the book of Mark for this, this season, this winter. We'll come back to it as we get into Easter But this is our last sermon for for this segment of Mark. So the first uh, section of the book begins at the very beginning of the book with a guy named John the Baptist proclaiming, prepare the way for the promised one. The Messiah is coming. And, And John was sent as a forerunner to proclaim the Messiah is coming. And then it ends with Jesus healing a blind man. And then immediately after that healing of a blind man, the second section begins with Peter. Jesus says to his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And Peter says, uh, who do the people say? He says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And thus begins the second section, which ends on our passage today, Another Healing of Another Blind Man. And then when we resume, Mark, as we start to head into Easter 2017— It will begin with what's known as the triumphal entry. When Jesus enters Jerusalem and the people are all around shouting, Hosanna, uh, the son of David, and basically what they're saying is the Messiah is here. Now we know, looking back, that they didn't understand what that meant, but they're basically shouting the Messiah is here. And then the book concludes with Jesus' disciples at last seeing the risen Messiah as he truly is, Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of his people. So there's this structure to it, and I just wanted you to see that where we're landing today is a definite ending of sort of a central chapter of the book, Jesus healing another blind man. And all of this is designed to introduce people to who Jesus is and call people to make a decision on if they believe who he claims to be, if they will trust and follow him as the Messiah or not. And that's what our passage today is about, too. So We'll just very simply, in a straightforward way, just walk through the text together. I just want you to see the story as laid out by the Holy Spirit, by Mark, here in this passage. So let's pray together before we do and ask the Lord to help us. Do you bow with me? Father, I understand that what we're about to do, proclaiming your word and receiving your word and reading your word together has the potential either to soften our hearts toward you and draw us near to you or harden our hearts against you. I know that every time we do this, we put ourselves in a dangerous situation. And I just pray that you would prepare our hearts now and that every one of us would receive your word and respond obediently to your word. And not harden ourselves to it. Either through flat out rejection or through more passive ignoring of it. Lord, please prepare our hearts and our minds and open our ears and our eyes. Please do your work in us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we enter this closing story of this second section In verse 46, we see Jesus walking to a terrible appointment. Verse 46 says, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So we resume, as we've seen, as we've been moving through Mark, Jesus walking towards Jerusalem, where he's going to be killed. And he knows he's going to be killed, and he knows it's going to be horrific, but he also knows he's going to rise from the grave. He told his disciples this over in verse verses 33 and 34 of Mark chapter 10. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, referring to Jesus himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after 3 days he will rise so just to try to get ourselves into the mindset here as you picture it there would have been a huge crowd of people traveling toward Jerusalem because they were holding their passover festival and feast so many many people would have been traveling on the road to Jerusalem Jesus and his followers were in the midst of all that Jesus himself knows what awaits him there is the cross. Now, I don't know if you've ever had to walk or move toward a terrible appointment before, but if so, you know that feeling. Uh, Maybe as a kid, you got a bad report card, and you know that feeling of riding home on the bus with that report card in your book bag, knowing you're going to face your parents. Or maybe you had a doctor's appointment or a procedure awaiting you the next day. Do you know that feeling as you try to sleep the night before, that dread? What Jesus was about to face, the darkest experience any human being has ever faced in the history of mankind. So this is, the, this is the journey. This is the situation as they're moving forward toward Jerusalem. A crowd heading to Passover, Jesus with his face set to go and die for the sins of his people. And here we meet Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now, if you've been here for our sermons recently, um, and you can go on to the next slide. I don't have any of the scripture projected, but just a visual to help you maybe picture maybe what it would have looked like. Um, If you've been here for our recent sermons through chapter 10, Jesus has been trying to teach his people trying to teach his people this paradox of the kingdom, that in the kingdom of God, those who seem to be first in the world society tend to be last. And in the kingdom of God, those who seem to be last in the world society tend to be first. And here we meet Bartimaeus, who closes this whole section of teaching on the first shall be last and the last shall be first in the kingdom. Bartimaeus, the personification of lastness and leastness in that society. He was blind and he was a beggar. He most likely had nothing but maybe the cloak on his back. No real ability to be a productive member of society. Very likely, because of his blindness and his poverty, an outcast from society. Now picture somebody you know that you could consider something of an outcast. You know, the oddball in class or at work or in your family or in your neighborhood. Bartimaeus would have been probably far lower in that culture than whoever you're picturing. Because he was blind, many in the culture may have thought he had been cursed by God. In another story, Jesus and the disciples come across a blind person, and they ask him, well, whose fault is it that he's blind? Is it because of his own sin or sin in his family? There was the assumption that some sort of an impairment like that meant that they had done something horrible and that God had cursed them. Now, Jesus says that's not true, but nonetheless, in that society, he would have likely been looked at as an accursed outcast begging on the side of the road, as humiliating and degrading and dehumanizing. That was Bartimaeus, the blind beggar. The personification of the lastness and leastness Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples about. You know, Jesus, over the course of Mark chapter 10, we've seen him interact with several different people. Think back, if you've been here, over the people we've seen Jesus interact with. Okay, mainly the disciples. We've seen him interacting with the disciples. We saw him interact with the Pharisees. These were the religious elites. These were the religious know-it-alls. Then we saw him interact with some children. And then we saw him interact with a rich man. And now we're seeing him interact with a blind beggar. Now, of all these people, which ones did Jesus commend? Only the children, and we're going to see the blind beggar. The disciples he kept having to correct because they were just getting it wrong at every turn. The Pharisees he had to rebuke because they were always trying to trick him rather than believe in him. The rich man he invited to come along, but the rich man wouldn't do it because he couldn't let go of all this stuff. Now, when he interacted with the children, he said, now this is what I'm talking about. You see these children? This is the way you come to me. In vulnerability, in simplicity, in humility, like a child. And here we see he's going to do very similarly with this blind beggar, Bartimaeus. Yeah, I had heard once of a megachurch who, in strategizing and planning its world conquest of planting campuses, teamed up with a retail master planner to decide where to put each campus. So basically the approach was we want to know where you forecast in the next five years will be the economic center of the area, where the economy will be booming, where they'll be building new neighborhoods, where they'll be putting up Harris Teeters and Publix, not Aldi's, and where they'll be putting up Targets, not Walmart's. We want to be where things are thriving, where the thriving people are, where the influencers are, where the upper crust of society is. That's where we want to plant our campuses. And so they have, and so their church has, has really exploded in terms of people. But it would seem like, from what, everything we've seen Jesus teaching here, that the opposite strategy would probably be the better one, to look for where are the outcasts. Where are the blind beggars? That's where we want to plant our campuses. That's where we want to go, because the harvest is, the, the, uh, the fields are white unto harvest, and those who are most harvestable tend to be the last and the least, the blind beggars and the children. So let's listen to Bartimaeus' plea, "The blind beggars' plea in verse 47. And when Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So Bartimaeus, he is blind, but he can see who Jesus is. And he calls out to him by this title, son of David. If you had to pick a title, one title for Jesus, what would you pick? Like If he came walking by and you were going to call out to him by a title What would you call out, I wonder? Bartimaeus chose son of David. Now, that might not mean anything to you, but to an ancient Jew, that meant a great deal. It meant that he was recognizing that Jesus was the fulfillment of long prophecy that there was becoming a king that would deliver his people. He was saying, you're the one. You're the son of David. You're the king we've been waiting for. Now, the others we've seen meet Jesus refer to him as teacher. And teacher is a respectful title. It basically indicates, I recognize that I have something I can learn from you. But son of David is a whole other level. Not only do I have something to learn from you, but I want to commit to you allegiance. And I will follow you and I will be your loyal subject. Not only are you my teacher, but you're my king. There's a unique danger for us in forgetting that Jesus is the long-awaited king. For one thing, we don't live in a monarchy, so we don't fully even think about the concept of a king very often. We live in a, a democratic republic, and we have a president, and it's different. Royalty is different. But Jesus is presented in the Bible as king. We can forget that. We can forget his majesty. We can forget his power. And especially at Christmas time. We can domesticate him all the way back into the manger and forget that that little baby in the manger, as miraculous and astounding as that is, he didn't stay there. He grew to be a man, a man who died for our sins and rose from the grave and is now alive. He's our living Lord, our King. There's a beautiful passage that sums this up in Philippians chapter 2. I want to read it to you, you can just listen to it. There's two parts of it, and the first part gets at the amazing humility of Jesus Christ. And I think we tend to remember that pretty well at Christmas, but after we read that part, I want you to listen to the second part, his exaltation now. In Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 6, it says that Jesus was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now I think perhaps we tend to remember that if we're part of church, and as we celebrate Christmas and we set up a manger scene in our homes and we have a little baby in there. Now, let's remember the second part of this story as well in verse nine. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's not just a heartwarming Christmas story. He is the real and living Lord, the King of Kings. And Bartimaeus, blind as he was, he saw it. He saw Jesus for who he was. He also saw himself clearly. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, or have pity on me. Your Bible may translate it instead of mercy. He saw Jesus for who he was, and he saw himself for who he was. I've told you this before, but maybe you've forgotten it, so I'll tell you again. Um, Long ago, I've worked at a place selling mattresses, and we would sit there for long stretches. Whoever was with you in the store, it'd usually be two of you, and long stretches, nobody would come in, and you'd just be sitting there behind the desk waiting. And uh, the guy I was working with, he was not a Christian, didn't believe. Uh, I don't know if he'd say he was an atheist. Probably he would say he's an agnostic. And um, his name is Cedric. He's a great guy. I really liked working with him. He's one of these guys that's just, like, cool. It makes it seem easy to look cool and be cool and, and know what to say to customers and stuff. Everybody loved him, and I loved him too. And, uh, but he knew I was a Christian. I knew he was not a Christian. We would talk about it, and one day we were sitting there talking about it, and he said, you know, probably the biggest question I have is, why would God, if he's so good, send people to hell? I, like, I cannot make that compute. I cannot make that make sense. Now, luckily, I was in seminary at the time, and we had just been talking about this. And so I actually had, usually I have nothing of worth to say in the moment, and I think of it later when I'm driving home. Oh, I should have said that. But I'd just been thinking about it. And I said, well, I think a better question is, why would God, if he is so good, allow any of us into heaven? You see, Cedric, you start from a position of, our innate goodness, and we're so good, and we deserve, and we're entitled, and how could God do this to us? God doesn't start from that position. God starts from a position of his perfect, holy, purity, and goodness. And in light of that, we have all fallen so short of the standard necessary to be with him in eternity. How could he let me be in heaven? I with would, I would ruin it. I know my heart. Yeah, I'm up here preaching, and perhaps you think that, not you that know me, but some of you are visitors, you don't know me as well, perhaps you may think that I got to preach because I was so holy and good. And I can tell you, and those who know me best can tell you, I, I'm not holy and good except for the holiness and goodness that God has given me through Jesus Christ. So apart from Jesus Christ, if I'm honest with myself, I can honestly say, if God allowed me into heaven, I would ruin it. It would no longer be perfect. My selfishness would infect it. My pride would infect it. Bartimaeus seems to somewhat understand at least the fact that as he approaches Jesus, he approaches him as someone who needs mercy, not as someone who is entitled to blessings. As we've seen Jesus interact with other people, we've seen more of an entitlement mindset. The disciples seem to feel entitled to greatness and glorious position with Jesus. The rich man seemed to feel entitled to more inheritance. He already had so much wealth, but he also wanted eternal life and his wealth. The Pharisees seemed to feel entitled to answers from Jesus. But here, Bartimaeus personifying the lastness and leastness that is first in the kingdom of God, all he wants is mercy. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So he speaks up, he cries out with a loud voice, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In verse 48, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So he's humble, but he's not a wimp. Just because the people around him are telling him, shut up, he, he will not. And he continues to shout out, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, I think we need to stop here and ask ourselves before we continue moving. Have I ever called out to Jesus like this? Now, you're all here and you're in church, and that's great. But it's not the equivalent of having called out to Jesus have mercy on me. Recognizing Jesus for who he is. Recognizing yourself for what you really are and your need for mercy and a Messiah. I heard someone say that in a, um, an unchurched or unchristianized culture, the minister's hardest job is getting people saved. But in a churched or Christianized culture like our own, The minister's hardest job is getting people lost. The hardest thing to do is to convince someone who has convinced themselves that they're saved because of some church affiliation that unless they have cried out to Jesus Christ for mercy, they're not. And so we always have to pause here. I have to do this with you all the time, week after week. Have you called out to Jesus like Bartimaeus is here? Have mercy on me. Let's see how Jesus responds. Verse 49 And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up. He is calling to you. See, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ is compassionate and caring and merciful and gracious. And when he responds with compassion, the crowd's disposition changes on a dime, doesn't it? They go from shut up to, oh, take heart, he's calling you. Yes, Jesus, I was about to go get him before you said. Verse 50, and throwing his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. You know, throwing your cloak off in a crowd like that probably meant you were never going to see that cloak again. You know Where the rich man failed was when Jesus said, go and liquidate all your possessions, give it away to the poor, come and follow me. And he couldn't do it. He just had too much. His investments had been too successful and his car was too nice. And his house, he'd just gotten just right. He just couldn't let go of it. And so he turned away from Jesus so he could hang on to his stuff. And here, blind Bartimaeus, very likely, and I don't want to read too much into it, but very likely, this was all he had was his cloak. Gets it out of the way so that he can go To Jesus. Sprang up. Runs to Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 51, What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Remember last week he asked James and John the same question. His two disciples came to him and they said, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus said, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they wanted glorious position in his kingdom. And he said, basically, it's not mine to give, it's the Father's, but if I did give it to you, it would come through a great deal of suffering. And ultimately, they did not get what they asked for. And he asked Bartimaeus the same question, what do you want me to do for you? And so put yourself in his his sandals for a minute here. You go from the service and you get into your car to go home or to go to lunch, and all of a sudden, Jesus is sitting in the back seat, and he's been waiting for you. And he says, so what do you want me to do for you? You're face to face with him. And he asks you, what do you want me to do for you? What would you answer? Let's see what the blind man asks for. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now, Rabbi... It kind of has the idea of teacher, but more than that, it has the idea of master. Again, it's it's someone that, that you're going to obey and follow and emulate. Rabbi. So he's gone from calling him son of David to rabbi. And I think this is significant. I think calling him son of David acknowledges who he is, the king. But calling him rabbi personalizes it. So he's not just the king, he's my king. He's not just the king who is worthy of loyalty and allegiance and reverence. He's my king, and I will give him my loyalty and allegiance and reverence. And those two are different. It's different to acknowledge the truth versus to embrace it personally for yourself. They're not the same thing. And I believe blind Bartimaeus got to this point here. Rabbi, master, makes all the difference in the world. From being a distant admirer to being a face-to-face follower. And I wonder where you stand. I have to make sure you don't only know Jesus as the Savior, but that you know him as your Savior. I have to press here continually to make sure you don't just know that Jesus is the Lord, but that you know him as your Lord. That you don't just know that he is the King, but that you know him as your King is so centrally, vitally important, not just for your life now, but for your whole eternity. You know, Satan would love to have tons of people acknowledging Jesus is the Lord and Savior, so long as they don't acknowledge him as their own Lord and Savior, and thereby are saved and transformed. So may the Lord search your heart and reveal to you where you stand in that regard. He says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now, when we first met Bartimaeus, we learned that he was a blind beggar. We also learned that he was the son of Timaeus. Bar Timaeus means son of Timaeus. I could have named Elias Bar-Matthew, and it would have meant son of Matthew. That's how the language worked. So we know his name, yet throughout the whole rest of the passage, he's not referred to as Bartimaeus once again, not, not even once. He's referred to as the blind man three times. The blind man did this. The blind man said that. Clearly, the main thing we're supposed to take away from this is he was a blind man. This was his identifying feature. He was a blind man. This was his greatest need. The defining element of his life is he was blind. It was his very greatest need. Often we see this. Our greatest need tends to be our greatest opportunity to meet Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Our greatest need tends to be the most likely doorway for Jesus to enter into our lives. If you, as I've been going through this passage, have realized that to you, Jesus is a distant reality, and you're not quite sure how to move from it being a distant reality to being your present Heart reality, I would encourage you to go to the area of your greatest need. And I'm willing to bet that you will find him standing there waiting for you. It's as if you are a house, and the house has a front door and a back door. And the front door you keep squeaky clean, you keep it clean and warm and inviting and decorated for the holidays. And it's there that you prop up your best features. Your goodness, your, your morality, the good choices you've made, your, your wealth and prestige, your church attendance and your religiousness, that's all at the front door. And that's the door you really want people to enter your life through. That's how you want people to come to know you. But your house also has a back door. And your back door is where sits all the trash that you just have not found the time to take away. And the mountains of dirty laundry and the grime and the dirt that you don't want anybody to see. It's here where you find buried your shame and your secrets. Your back door of your life is where you find your guilt and your regret and your failures and your fears. The startling reality of Christianity is that Jesus will never enter your life through that front door. He will only enter through the back door. And he stands there knocking, but only at the back door. Your areas of greatest darkness, greatest needs, greatest fears, that's where Jesus will meet you and will enter your life. That's where you go and you don't have in hand your moral record and your religious goodness. Instead, you're face-to-face with your need. That's where you go to Jesus and say, have mercy on me. You don't go to Jesus and say, I deserve this. And there you find his compassion and his embrace and his love and his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. So what is your area of greatest need? Go there and you'll find Jesus waiting for you. Go there and say, have mercy on me. And you'll find it. Verse 52, the final verse of this section, the final verse we'll look at this winter in Mark. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So Jesus says, go your way. And then at the end of the interaction, we see that he follows Jesus on the way. See, when you meet Jesus like this, and you receive his mercy like this, and you go to him, and and you cry out to him in this way, and he becomes not just the king, but your king. His way becomes your way. And it's life-changing from there on. You no longer live the way you used to. He'll no longer sit beside the road begging. He'll never be there again. He'll be following Jesus. He says, your faith has made you well. What all the others lacked, even the disciples' disciples, to some degree, at this point. And the rich man and the Pharisees, what they all lacked, this man had in abundance faith. And therefore, he, the last, would be first. And those who seem to have been first would be last. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I trust in just the raw power of it. And I pray that if there is any next step that you would have us take that you would make it crystal clear to us if there, are anyone, if there is anyone in the room who only knows you from a distance I pray that you would call them to you the way you did for Bartimaeus I pray that you would purge us of our pride replace it with humility Lord help us to have faith in you the way he did and we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.